0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your
1: hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 210, recorded for the week of April 26th, 2023, the Cloud Pod Deep Inspects itself. Good evening, Ryan and Matthew. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. Good. It's been a busy week, uh, as usual, and uh, we are recording a little later this week. Uh, so we can actually pick up earnings early. So we get to do earnings today, <laughs> but uh, there's also lots of cloud news once again, as usual, and all of the fun associated to that. So let's uh, let's run into the news here. First of all, I want to pimp the FinOps X Foundation uh, conference. So FinOps Foundation, of course, is the number one uh, you know FinOps based user confer- user group, and uh, you can join that by joining the FinOps website. Uh, and then they have their annual conference coming up June 29th through the 30th in beautiful San Diego, California. Uh, you can join your fellow practitioners uh, where they'll be sharing all their FinOps knowledge, collaborating on Chalk Talks and networking together. Uh, plus there'll be a beautiful award party uh, on a deck of an aircraft carrier on the last day. Uh, and most importantly, I will be there. Uh, I have booked a ticket. I will be there and I will have stickers. Uh, and if you're part of the FinOps Foundation and are going to be at the X event, uh, I will see you there. Uh, just look for me and ask for a sticker, and I will provide it to you. So do check that out if you're interested in all things FinOps. Uh, looking at the agenda, what's it they're covering at the conference? Uh, Quiet, a few really good sessions going to be on the books.
2: It's very cool. It's it's nice to see things opening up and you know participating in the world again. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm definitely uh, very intrigued. Uh, but yeah, some of the uh, some of the cool items here I saw from the, the thing as I pulled it up here. Uh, swimming upstream while saving money. FinOps lessons from Walmart. That's looked pretty good. You know, how do you do it at scale? How do you do it uh, when you're trying to spend money at the same time? Uh, so that's kind of cool. There was another one on uh, the forecasting process and budgeting by Atlassian looked really good as well. Ooh. Automating $100 million in cloud savings sounds intriguing to me, although it looks like it's a vendor pitch. So who knows, but we'll see. <laughs> uh you never know but uh yeah lots of good talks uh you know friends of the show will be there of course uh and then you know uh, all kinds of interesting things going on throughout the week uh, as well as keynotes by all of the great people in the FinOps foundation so check those out uh if you're in the foundation or if you're not you can sign up and then uh, join the conference yourself all right well guys it is earning season once again which means plug your ears And maybe maybe the soundboard will work. Let's try it again.
3: <laughs> Excellent. If I wasn't awake before, I am now. You are now <laughs> yeah. awake, yes.
1: Which is what we had to do to get into earnings because it would yeah. be kind of dry. So I've got to make it exciting. Uh, Microsoft was up first on Tuesday with revenue of $52.9 billion, up 7% from a year ago versus an expectation of $51 billion. Of course, driven mostly by AI, (laughs) I'm pretty sure. Profits were up 9% uh, from a year ago to $18.3 And most importantly to us, Microsoft Cloud revenue was up 22%. uh, But that is down from the prior year where they had 32% growth uh, in the quarter. So uh, Microsoft Azure continue to grow, continuing to get bigger, and uh, powered by AI. I expect that's going to continue to be a growth market for them over the next several years
2: yeah totally uh I was, you know I'm surprised um with some of the numbers just because i you know I wasn't expecting after so many years of growth and that it would just continue to rise even
3: despite sort of the economic hit it's completely shifting but you know, good job mm, yeah, yeah I feel like at one point some of these numbers have to slow down a little bit
1: well, I mean it's a lot of big numbers, right like to quadruple or triple you know billions of dollars in revenue It gets harder to do mm-hmm. of course but, and then especially in recessionary macroeconomic climate it's hard to generate a profit we'll talk about someone who's having a little more trouble with that in a little bit <laughs> moving on to google uh revenue was 69.79 billion uh which is higher than expected uh According to the earnings report, YouTube advertising was back up a little bit, uh, but Google cloud revenue crossed uh, $7.45 billion. Uh, There was an expectation to be about 7.49, so a little bit down below expectations. But most importantly, Google says it's finally generating a profit in its cloud computing business. Uh, The unit recorded operating income of $191 million in the quarter uh, compared to a $706 million loss a year ago. So congratulations, Google. You now have a cash cow to help build your other businesses, just like Amazon does.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's it's got to be a huge load off. And, you know, as a GCP customer, it's a, it's a definitely a, a load off for me because, you know, Google will kill things if it doesn't make money. <laughs> it's, uh, and so, like, I imagine there's a lot of people that have worked really hard to turn this profitable because it's been, you know, it's been up and down in the last couple of years. and looked like it was going in the right direction and the losses were bigger the following year. And
3: so this is nice. I'm,
2: I'm really happy for them.
3: Yeah. I'm wondering if now they finally stabilize some of the capital expense in, uh, expenditures that they've kind of done with all the data center build outs, stuff like that. So now it's a little bit more maintenance and more incremental improvements, but I guess it also depends on how many new regions they open every year.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have a capital investment you have to make in your existing data centers. Plus you have built out of new ones. Uh, and then you have fixing what happened in Paris. which uh, has been a bad week uh, in the data center world. If you're in the Europe West nine region for Google, uh, they've been down since uh, April 25th at seven o'clock Pacific time. We are recording this on Friday at six o'clock and they're still down. And uh, the uh, description from Google is water intrusion in a data center in Europe West nine caused a multi cluster failure that led to a shutdown of multiple zones. Impact is now limited to a services in Europe West nine a, there's no ETA for full recovery of operations in Europe West 9A at this time. We've heard to see extended outages for some services. Customers are advised to fail over to other zones and regions if they are impacted. Which is not great. Uh, the bigger issue that I learned out of this whole outage, though, was the fact that availability <laughs> zones in Google are not like availability
2: <laughs> zones in AWS. No, they are not. <laughs> uh,
1: so apparently in the Google world, they consider an AZ to be in the same building in some cases. Not all cases, but it can be in the same building As long as it has disparate power and cooling systems uh, and electrical uh, uh, network, sorry, uh, for that particular AZ, which is not the same thing as what Amazon talks about. So in this event, uh, they apparently had an issue with the building, fire suppression system occurred. I think I read that uh, one of their coolant systems leaked onto the batteries, which caused the fire to occur uh, and then took out switchgear potentially in whatever the, the cabinet is for Europe West 9A. But then, of course, that caused a ripple through the rest of the building as, of course, everything got shut down for fire suppression, uh, which is not segmentation. <laughs> so no. uh, I, uh, we'll talk about this again uh, when they give us a root cause analysis mm-hmm. report or, or post action. But uh, for right now, uh, if you're in that 9A region or availability zone, uh, you are in uh, bad shape. So
2: that's a bit of a
1: bummer. So uh, three days so far and they're not back up. So yeah. really bad
2: issue there in France. You know, it's one of those things. This is the second like year in a row. Like, I forget when the big data center fire was in the last telco. It's, it's you know, these are shots fired. You know, all those DR plans that we know aren't going to work. Like, you know, let's, before it's a disaster, we should look at them because they, they do get at, acted on occasionally. And I don't know um, if the the rate is going to continue, but at, at this level, but hopefully not. Yeah,
3: no. Wasn't the last one in France too? (laughs) Wasn't it like a so maybe the responses just don't be in France? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. So OVH was the data center in 2021 that caught on fire and took Mm -hmm. down that uh, a bunch of stuff for weeks on end. Uh, They didn't have backups and a bunch of things, and so there was people who lost data and were very cranky about that in OVH's case. And then you know, if you go back a couple years prior to that, they burned down Notre Dame. So um, (laughs) you know, fires in, in France are maybe a thing. Mm -hmm. Avoid the whole country. You'll be better off. (laughs) All right, moving back to earnings, which is more important. Uh, (laughs) Amazon finally finished up the week on Thursday with their earnings report. Uh, Amazon uh, said they had $127.4 billion versus expectation from Wall Street of $124.5 billion, uh, which should be good, uh, but the stock market did not react kindly to them. Uh, Amazon Web Services was $21.3 billion versus $21.22 billion expected. uh, and that is only a growth of sixteen percent in the first quarter, uh, which is nowhere near the twenty percent they had the year before. But again, they're they're growing twenty one point three billion dollars. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I think it's okay that it was only sixteen percent. but apparently Wall Street doesn't agree. most uh, interesting about their earnings report, though, is that Finops made a big uh, presence known uh, where they talked about a lot of customers taking advantage of uh, the elasticity of the cloud to reduce their costs, especially in in light of uncertain economic conditions. Uh, And there was a quote from Andy Jassy, the Amazon CEO. There's a lot to like about how our teams are delivering for customers, particularly amidst an uncertain economy. Our storage business is continuing to improve the cost to serve in our fulfillment network while increasing the speed with which we get products into the hands of customers. Our advertising business continues to deliver robust growth, largely due to our ongoing machine learning investments to help customers see relevant information. And while our AWS business navigates companies spending more cautiously in this macro environment, we continue to prioritize building long-term customer relationships, both by helping customers save money today and enabling them to be more easily leveraged technologies with large language models and generative AI with our uniquely cost-effective machine learning chips, the Trainium and Inferentia, manage large language models through Bedrock and AI Co Companion Code Whisperer. We like the fundamentals we're seeing at AWS, and we believe there's much growth ahead. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate your optimism.
2: Yeah, and way to shove AI into
3: you know, a conversation.
2: Just for
1: no reason. Exactly. <laughs>
3: I was about to say bingo at the end of that because I feel like I heard just like seventeen buzzwords all in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. It,
2: I mean, it's like I could not work on Wall Street. I I don't understand like why stocks go up and down. It just con- confuses me. You meet expect or you you exceed expectations. You still manage to grow. Um, you're per- you've you've know, been profitable for a while and still it's like nah. Next, okay, I don't, I don't get it.
1: Well, it, it, you know, like it's not like they're not trying. <laughs> like it's a very difficult economic situation out there. Many companies are struggling uh, with growth, to, especially when they're comparing these companies to pandemic growth, which is not fair. Uh, and then you know you have people trying to save money now because they're worried the economy is about to fall through the floor at any moment. Uh, And so you know it's a tough market, and it's tough for everybody. It's not just the cloud providers, but Mm -hmm. does that mean the gravy train of AWS is over? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's just you know slightly paused, and people I think are taking a a few minutes to reassess what makes sense. I did see some posts recently on like sysadmin uh, forums, such about moving workloads back from cloud, back to on prem, and there are workloads that should never have been moved to cloud <laughs> that are very static and, you know, opt- you know, they don't have the economical advantages of using the cloud. And so um, those decisions will be made and those decisions should be made all the time uh, when you look at your workloads. But uh, is it a big trend? I don't think it's a trend yet.
2: Oh no. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, and then, it, you know, I don't know if the stock value has more to do with their retail business than it is the, the cloud business as well. But, you know, it's just, it cracks me up really. Cause you know, if I, if I had to predict or make my living predicting the stock market, I would fail miserably, and it would be awful. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you would be much more into spreadsheets than you are. So, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I think part of the problem is like the companies are doing okay; they're beating Wall Street expectations. And then, but they then they set expectations for the future quarter as being kind of neutral to a little bit down, or you know, they're being they're they're caging their bets, in my opinion. Sure. Uh, yeah. And then the stock market just bludgeons them for that. Like, how dare you look at macroeconomic conditions and say that you're not going to have the same amount of growth you had this quarter, next quarter. Like it's, it's a very punitive, uh, market right now
3: in yeah. the wall street world. And if you miss your targets, you get in more trouble, but from wall street, if you exceed your targets, well, you didn't, you didn't get your targets, right? Yeah. feels like they're damned if you do. And you're damned if you don't.
1: Yeah. You're only, you're only in good shape if you, uh, manage to exceed their expectations and also predict that that, expe- that exceeding expectations will continue to exist into the future. And then you're fine and if you don't have those two scenarios then you're you're in trouble.
3: so, so you have to have exponential growth. It's not that hard yeah
1: but I mean, you can't <laughs> measure these tech companies the same way you used to like, you know if, if what you're saying is true that uh, you know growth at all costs is no longer important then you can't then punish them for having growth at all costs. you know it just it doesn't make sense to me. And you know, and they're laying off a lot of people, and they're doing things to cut down costs, and still record profits are coming out of these companies. So they're, they're not unhealthy companies. So uh, you know, yeah. the world has changed. I just don't quite get it yet.
2: Well, it's just it's it's because it's gambling, right? It's not they're betting on whether companies continue to if it's going to be more valuable in the future. The the value of the company and the the actual like is it worth investing in is completely removed these days. So it's just doesn't make sense by any of the rubrics I use. For
1: the yeah, I mean, the, the people want you know to put hundred dollars in and get one hundred twenty dollars out in six mm-hmm. months to a year, and the reality is, in in a bull market uh, or a bear market, you know, you're in a situation where you're going to be holding on to things longer than you used to. It's not a quick buck solution, but everyone wants it to be a quick money machine, and it's not. Yep. So, all right, well, let's move on to non-technical Wall Street news because we've reached the limit of our knowledge. Yeah. So uh, AWS is up first, as usual. Uh, Last week, we talked about Code Catalyst and the general availability of it. And we mentioned the $20 per user per month enterprise features. And we mentioned that it needs a little bit more to really get, you know, to justify those $20. And they've already released the first thing for it. So apparently, listen to us, although this announcement came out before we published last week's episode. (laughs) Amazon (laughs) uh, has released an administrative dashboard for dev environments. The dashboard enables users with space administrator role to centrally view and manage dev environments across your projects. And a space represents your company department, which contains projects, team members, and associated cloud resources created by Code Catalyst. Using the new dashboard, you can view, stop, and delete dev environments belonging to your space. Uh, So there you go. You have a one-stop dashboard to see how all your devs are working or not working using Code Catalyst uh, as part of your enterprise feature. So keep an eye on that. I expect there'll be more coming out for that over the next few months. Uh, Maybe not by the time
2: we publish the next episode but we'll see and I still take credit for it even though they did this before they could have possibly got the idea from us well
1: I you mean know. I do have an Amazon Alexa on my desk and so it's very possible they're just listening in
2: good point
3: I have one in here too <laughs> mine's in the other room because I have too many coworkers that will tell my Alexa just to start to play music uh-huh. No, I think it's great to at least start to build that, you know, as they're building out to build that single pane of glass for administrators, just because the amount of times that, you know, I've come and looked, I'm like, okay, how do we save money? And the first thing is stop the things that you're not using and delete the things that are dead or, you know, decommissioned RA that nobody ever just pulled the plug on. And, you know, at least this gives you that ability to kind of start. So I'm really curious to see what else they innovate on.
1: Well, uh, if you have been looking to get S3-compatible storage into your data center and you didn't want to get uh, all of the big expensive stuff, you can now order a Snowball Edge compute-optimized device and get S3-compatible storage across uh, all of your internal infrastructure. Uh, you can use AWS OpsHub, which is their management GUI, for the Snow services, and S3-compatible storage at the Edge remotely centralize all the administration of that. Uh, This can make it easier to migrate to AWS with your data without having to pay for expensive egress fees or to reduce latency of that transition. Uh, You can also use this as an intermediate storage location, which allows the Snow device to handle the replication directly to S3 for you. uh, So you can do the migration off your NetApp or whatever storage solution you want to use on-prem, right to the Snowball edge, and then let it replicate as appropriately to the mothership and object storage or put it on a UPS truck and ship it in the fastest method possible to the data center, and they will transfer it with uh, their very high-speed internet fabric in the data center itself. So, a uh, right way to get your data to AWS, and potentially a great way to get your data out.
2: Yeah, the, the getting out is a very interesting, uh, you know, it's been very difficult with uh, the amount of cost for for data egress, and so, like, is this possibly maybe um, a recognition of that fact, that they they completely trap you?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, they didn't say specifically data out. That's not part of their press release. It's part of my additional
3: notes yeah. to the,
2: But uh,
1: <laughs>
3: Yeah, fair point. <laughs> yeah, I found in the actual, I read the whole article and in the security section, one thing they called out you know, to me was it said the device needs the Snow IM action needs S3 star. And I'm like, why is this under security that you need all permissions for everything in S3? Felt like that's something that I wouldn't call out in the press release, um, but it's there.
1: Yeah, they they like to call out some of the limitations and some of the gotchas in the blog post, which is always sort of fun. They're like, oh, great, you just got all hyped about this amazing, great, amazing thing. I'm like, oh, but read this little note that's going to screw you.
2: <laughs> I kind of like that. I mean, it's better than finding out the alternative way, which is like, man,
1: <laughs> The blog post is great. I mean, I, I don't mind it either, but it is... Yeah. It is one of the funny things as you're reading through it. Like, yeah. here's a hype article, and then here's a hope and bring it back down to Earth at the end. Yeah. Here's everything you need to know that goes wrong.
3: Yeah. I mean, it also talks about like disk failures and stuff like that, about how you, you know, can cluster multiple of these together to get a little bit more availability in the event of hard drive failures so you don't just lose your data. You know, so there is some interesting pieces to it, but like the real shots across the bow of like, hey, this, like, hey, if you only have one and the hard drive fails, you're screwed. You're like, oh okay, yeah, you forget that not everything is, you know, 11-9s resilient. Yeah. Gotta have a strategy. I do
1: hope someday in my career I get to do a very massive uh, storage migration. Not to the point that I need the truck, but like right you know, right where the point is and you have to order like a hundred of these things, then I can build like mazes in my data center
3: of Snowball Edge <laughs> devices. I think that'd be fun. I kind of want the truck that, you know, I get the two armored police cars to drive with it. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's cool too. Like, I mean, both stories would be <laughs> awesome to have on your resume. Like, hey, I ordered the the snowmobile and uh, or i built a maze of snow devices in my data center to move all the stuff i I think both stories are great so either
2: one is good i think the truck would lose its luster pretty quick like after the first five minutes when you realize that it's like now it's just nine months of like watching paint dry as data moves over
1: (laughs) yeah the amazon inspector now supports deep inspection of your ec2 instances that's what you need to have when uh you know things are going wrong in your instance uh, root canal. (laughs) The (laughs) continual EC2 scanning features, uh, once activated, will expand the capability of Inspector to now identify software vulnerabilities and application programming languages, including Python, Java, and Node.js packages, and on top of the existing OS package inspection that they have. Uh, This is available to you now with no additional charge, uh, and it supports all of your EC2 instances, your Elastic Container Registry, and your Lambda functions at scale. So make sure your systems are running as expected and securely, which is great.
2: Yeah, I had a hard time understanding whether or not this feature is announcing the continual scanning or if that's a feature that was already there and this is just the additional packages and stuff running that's now in scope of inspection. But.
1: Well, if you're a new customer, which is only 16% of their growth is from new customers, apparently, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's activated by default. But if you're an existing customer, you can turn it on now. So it's, hey. if if you're a new account, uh, you already have this. If you're a legacy inspection account, you can turn it on.
2: Oh, so I got to go do a thing. Cool. Good to know. Yep. I did it in the CloudPod account.
1: I send it out. pointed out our EC2 instance, and I forgot about it until just now as we're talking about it. So uh-huh. I have not checked out how what results it came back with, but I expected it to tell me something about PHP or Python or something in my box that's not secure.
2: I was going to congratulate you. That means you clearly have no vulnerabilities, but... There's the I mean, you're right. The there is the, the more practical moment. alternative. <laughs> yeah. I mean
1: the, the Schrodinger's cat right now is that I don't, or I have a lot. I don't know until I look. Uh, and then uh, this story uh, Matt saw on our you know shows that we are topics we didn't really cover and thought this was something we should talk about. So customers with multiple organization units and accounts can now create up to 10 AWS firewall manager administrator accounts from an AWS organization to manage their firewall policies. Uh, so for those of you who have, stayed, have have tracked a firewall manager, you basically have a, an account you designate as the firewall management account, typically a security account or potentially a network uh, operations team account. And then they will be able to manage all of your Amazon firewalls centrally. Uh, but that could be limitations because uh, customers want to delegate some responsibilities for firewall administration to maybe security for scope restrictions uh, or to the network team for enabling access or different things. And so, you needed to have the ability to have multiple accounts, so having ten of them now is a nice improvement.
3: Yeah, and the reason why I kind of thought this was interesting was, you know, um, a lot of the stuff you could always, always only delegate to a single account. So things like config admin, um, fi- the firewall firewall manager, which also includes WAF, um, and a lot of the other ones, you can only go to one location. So this is kind of nice that you can start to subdivide stuff out. Um, especially if you're an organization that has you know potentially multiple you know acquisitions that you're merging in and whatnot, and you still have your own different security teams. you can kind of let them kind of manage their own aspects of it um as you know a potentially a higher level security team doesn't understand every underlying app. And just turning on rules being like, hey, we need WAF and need this you know whatever thing turned on might break a specific app down downstream that they might not know about. So it's kind of just interesting to see that they are doing this. I'm curious to see if they expand it to all the other services that have delegated administrators for.
2: Yeah. No, it's one of those things where it's you run into this the hard way, which is, you know, you sure, if you delegate it to a security account, and then the the nature of just, you know, the, the amount of requests and the velocity ends up to be a blocking unit, right? And now you've locked everyone who could do anything about that, you know, out by delegating it. So it's this I like this pattern. I hope to see it continue and I hope it yeah expands out to, to multiple multiple services through organizations.
1: Yep. Let's move on to Google. Uh, so there's a blog post directly from Sundar Pachai himself talking about their AI organization. Uh, you know, he liked to point out that they were the AI first company since 2016, which uh, didn't work out so well for them. <laughs> uh, but they point out all of their <laughs> AI enhancements, including uh, the camera and the Pixel phone. Uh, and he said over the time, they basically have created two world-class research teams, leading the entire industry forward with foundational breakthroughs that have ushered in the new era of AI. Uh, but the pace is now, of course, faster than ever. And as Google is woefully behind, as we've made fun of them multiple times about it, Uh, To address this, Sundar has decided that creating a unit that will help build a more capable system more safely and responsibility, and they'll be combining these two leading AI research teams into a new team called Google DeepMind, which will bring together the two leading research teams on AI field, the brain team from Google Research and the original DeepMind team. Uh, These teams have built things like AlphaGo, WaveNet, Deep Reinforcement Learning, and system frameworks like TensorFlow and JAX. Uh, combining these units into one focus team backed by the computational resources of Google will significantly accelerate Google's progress in AI. And we actually talked about this a few weeks ago uh, where we read an article about how uh, Google was keeping their scientists away from their practitioners and that was causing a lot of the delays. And so this is a step in the right direction in general.
3: Yeah, I kind of feel like this press release is you know, hey, we realized we're behind. We realized we were in front and we fell behind and Here's what we're gonna to do to kind of re-level set and you know try to take back over the industry.
2: I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to me because I, I really think that it's they're not really behind in the terms of AI. And I think they got caught off guard when the when it all pivoted to be directly exposed to the consumer. They, you know, Google is very clearly building back-end AIs for products purposes, you know, the AI that handles, you know, image processing in the phones, like they mentioned. You know, search results, all those things, they were clearly going to try to build it into products and not really expose it directly to customers. And the whole thing went left on them. And now they're, it looks like they're playing catch up and they're like, well, but, 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 but we did this forever. Yeah. <laughs> we built it. We were yeah. first. Yeah, You can shout it all you want, but you didn't go first to market. So, nope. Exactly.
0: Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure Architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimised cloud native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the cloud pod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice.
1: Well, uh, BARD, speaking of AI investments, uh, has gotten some new capabilities. They're still not allowed in the Google workspaces, uh, so this is still for personal use only, but BARD can now officially help you with programming and software development tasks, including code generation, debugging, and code explanation. They support over 20 programming languages, including C++, Golang, Java, JavaScript, Python, and TypeScript. You can easily export Python code to Google Collab with no copy and paste required to collaborate with your peers. Uh, Bar can also help you write functions for your Google Sheets, which thank you, good, thank goodness because writing macros and functions in Google Sheets or Excel is horrendous. Uh, <laughs> and Bar can help explain code snippets to you. So when Ryan gives me code now, I can just type it into Bar and say, what the hell was Ryan thinking? <laughs> and apparently it will tell me now what was up with that. Uh, this is great if you're learning programming for the first time, or if you need some additional support to understand Ryan's craziness uh, at three in the morning. Uh, sadly, uh, they want the Bard so early and may provide inaccurate. or they warned that Bard is so early and may provide inaccurate, misleading, or false information, and may provide you code that is not optimal or incomplete or doesn't produce the right output? But then they point out that bar can also help you fix it if it is broken,
2: which is sort <laughs> of a weird flip of the ter- script. There, it is at this point that I want to. Uh... Remind our listeners that I am also capable of providing inaccurate, misleading, or false
3: information, and <laughs> definitely provides code that's not optimal, not optimal, or non-functional. If you make fun of Ryan's code, don't look at mine, though.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm really impressed with like the speed of which these things are getting better, and like ha- how dramatically more improvement is in each iteration, like GP three three to four. This newer version of Bard, which I don't know if they have a version of it, like, but it's very clearly different when you use it. It's just the speed at which these things are are going in is is crazy to me, and so it's you know it is very interesting you know times, and I can't wait to see how it all shakes down. But yeah, it's cool.
1: Yeah, hopefully it doesn't shake down with a lot of people losing their
2: jobs. But uh,
1: <laughs> that's my <laughs> my only concern about all of this AI stuff. But you know, it's going think- to change,
2: right? Yeah, it's going to be like manufacturing.
1: Yeah, and you'll and you'll become like you know your your skill set will become how do you make the AI actually code the code that's good and how do you use the AI to tune it and you know because it's yeah it's not gonna write you're not gonna have to write the simple code anymore but you're still gonna have to know how to talk to the AI and do magic and so mm-hmm. it'll be an evolution it'll be interesting to see it and how it goes through and I'm sure my kids will be AI experts and I'll be old man screaming mm-hmm. at AI saying this is ridiculous I just want to answer my question but
2: we'll get there hey you old stodgy you know bank companies are still in their mainframes and uh you know there's there's always going to be that you know the old thing although i did read an article about ai can generate code in fortran and Cobol, so maybe it'll just fix that too
1: (laughs) perhaps if you start start writing assembly code on top of all this then you know the ai can take (laughs) over so yep yep Uh, Well, if uh, you are looking for confidential computing on Google, they have a new uh, N2D machine that leverages the AMD Secure Encrypted Virtualization Secured Nesting Pages, or AMD SEV, SNP uh, for short. These new instances are built upon memory encryption and add new hardware-based security protections such as strong memory integrity, encrypted register state, uh, thanks to the encrypted SEV-ES, and hardware-rooted remote attestation, so you can guarantee that your hardware is good, and that's tested for for all of your compliance needs. So uh, if you're looking for these on Google, these are brand new to you on the N2D capability, which is their AMD family N2.
2: And CloudPod would like to sincerely apologize to our listeners that Jonathan's not here to actually
3: explain what this is or to the rest of the hosts so that we can talk about it more. <laughs> no, no idea. Uh, the, the concept of confidential compute, you know, whatever, confidential VMs, whatever all the other names are, you know, it's always a really interesting concept. And once you get to the point when you have all your logs off and you aren't logging into your machines and you're doing everything stateless and everything along those lines, you don't understand why more companies don't leverage them. It's a great just way to, from a security standpoint, just say like, we can't log into them and they're secure. I know that there is a decently cost lift on some of these to do, which is probably part of the reason, unless if you have a business need for it. But the idea of just here's hardware that you can never log into, besides blowing most developers' minds, it always feels like a really um, interesting concept for me. And I've always wanted to play with them more. There's the cost of running it, but then you know I think the biggest hurdle is really just the operations
2: model it just doesn't support it, right? Like we're still an industry that's trying to get you know CI/CD, you know, foundational things in some companies, right? So it's the idea of being able to to run a workload like this and keep it up, I think, is
3: still a
2: bridge too far.
3: Yeah, I feel like it's terrifying to most people. You know, oh my God, what do you mean we can't connect to the box? Like, yeah. how are we going to handle it? Well, you don't. You just delete it and let a new one come right. back in. Yeah. No. But obviously debugging becomes exponentially more difficult because yeah. you can't just say, hey, go get me the memory dumps or hey, let me go grab this extra log that we didn't know existed
1: yeah observability becomes a, a big deal <laughs> and these yeah. applications very quickly i mean i think the other big lift is that most dev teams are already buried trying to get features out and then say oh you, you have to go modify your code to use this confidential computing thing uh, i think that's also becomes a problem for a lot of companies and again it goes back to the business driver if you if you have the driver to do it then you're going to make the investment but if you don't it's sort of like mm, i'll get to it eventually and you never never do
3: Oh, see, I always understood it was just like swap out the you know instance type from one to the other. I didn't realize there's actual other things that you have to change.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to be able to access the memory. You have to be able to do some things. So there are some changes, uh, at least in the first generations of confidential compute. We're about to talk about the Intel TDX, which doesn't require that in a second. But, uh, you know, the AMD does require some recompilation to be able to support the uh, the different modules here for security and encryption.
3: And there's your segue. Yeah, the segue on the <laughs> Azure,
1: uh, where they are yes. announcing the new DC ESV5 and EC ESV5 series confidential VMs with the Intel TDX chip. Uh, so, if you did not like your AMD confidential VMs from Google, when uh, you really wanted Intel, Azure has you covered. The feature of the fourth generation Intel Xeon scalable processors. The VMs are backed by an all-new hardware-based trusted execution environment called Intel Trust Domain Extensions, or TDX. And the selling feature is that organizations can use these VMs to seamlessly bring comfortable workloads to the cloud without any code changes to their apps. The DC variant has uh, ability up to 96 vCPU and 385 gigs of memory, and the EC variant will go to 64 vCPU and up to 512 gigs of memory. Uh, since you may want to also attest the environment, Azure can retrieve hardware evidence for cryptographic verification just like Google could. Organizations will have native support for attestation with Microsoft Azure Attestation feature, and they have worked closely with Intel and in support for Project Amber, which is Intel's upcoming trust services to help enterprises that want to enforce operator independence and separation of duties in deploying confidential computing.
2: I like that. The attestation service. I mean, I want to see that pattern grow across cloud as well. Like that's, I, I love the idea of, of being able to attest your state and, and verify compliance by, via API request. It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> As a person who's had to collect evidence for many audits, <laughs> anything <laughs> to automate that stuff and to get confidence is uh, is always a big, uh-huh. big deal. Uh, a little bit more on this project, Amber. I looked it up because I hadn't heard of it before. Uh, it's Intel's groundbreaking service. It's a SaaS-based implementation of an independent trust authority that provides attestation workflows in a public, private, multi-cloud environment, so it can cross both your private and public needs. Uh, it provides you a trusted execution environment, a root of trust, and more of the services operation independent from the cloud edge infrastructure provider itself. So if you don't trust Amazon, Azure, or Google, you can trust Intel, which maybe is a little bit weak, but uh, is available to you there. Uh, Single Trust Authority integrates with all your cloud providers for multi-cloud and designed to be cloud agnostic, all tied to Amber. Uh, so exciting to kind of see where they continue to drive that as they are doing many, many announcements this year uh, on this particular framework.
3: At one point, you have to trust someone. Yep.
1: I don't know if I trust Intel, though. I was there for Heartbleed. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever the other one was. Uh wasn't Heartbleed. It was one of the other code execution vulnerabilities. Um,
2: it's going to drive me crazy now. The body doesn't like to remember pain. So I don't remember either. I know. I black it out. <laughs> Spectra. 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 And Meltdown. And
1: Meltdown. That's right. Uh,
2: Heartbleed was the
1: OpenSSL one. Which, so, uh-huh.
3: Yeah. Yeah, which is, I think I feel like all those from memory, or I've just merged them all together in my memory, were like a three month span. But yeah, they
1: were all around around the same time, so I just I consider them all <laughs> the
3: heartbleed era,
1: and like I was <laughs> doing a lot of patching and getting a lot of really bad performance out of my hardware because none of this stuff was optimized anymore. That's great. <laughs> so of course, uh, you know the macroeconomic climate is uh, quite difficult these days, and so Microsoft is here with a four cloud cost optimization strategies for you to use with Microsoft Azure. Uh, and as we go through this here in a second, if you've done all these things, I may again plug the FinOps X Foundation Conference to teach you other ways to potentially do this because um, once you do these four things they talk about, really all of your cost savings comes from architecture shifts <laughs> and other you know more complicated solutions than the four that they're going to give you here in a second. Uh, but Azure points out that there are several benefits to cost optimization, which is the first time I've ever seen these four from them. <laughs> uh, so the first one is understanding, measuring, optimizing, and tracking your cloud costs, which is the duh. Uh, the next one was reduced carbon emissions. I'm like, oh, okay, liked it. Improving the performance of the app. I don't think anyone's talked about FinOps in the context of improving the performance of the app. Uh, and savings can be driven towards innovation. So they're basically saying what well, you're not spending on Azure, you can respend on innovation in your product or in your services. Uh, and of course, the four main cost saving strategies from Azure, number one, right sizing, <laughs> which is uh, where everyone should start, is right sizing. Number two is cleaning up unused resources, which, yep, you should definitely do that. Uh, Three is buying reservations and savings plans, you know, so commit more money to Microsoft, which is great. And then number four, which is a new one that I hadn't seen on the cost thing, is database and application tuning, uh, which, you know, is definitely a good idea, especially if you're trying to get bigger boxes because your app doesn't scale. Some tuning might help you out, which would be nice. Uh, But, you know, they have this great Chat GPT thing. Why can't they an AI service to help me tune my app. That'd be cool. Do that for me.
3: Go tune all my database calls. That would also be useful. All my SQL calls. Yes. Feels like it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, they actually have that. Um, I know in Azure, if you load up, I think it's in the databases or in one of the fields, um, it will tell you like, hey, go out an index to this thing and it should help, you know, increase your performance and like more at the SQL level than like the actual SQL query level. But I thought that was kind of always interesting. I really feel like number two here, cleanup, you know, is always ridiculously hard because everyone's like, oh, it's in the cloud. It's only like two cents a gigabyte or three cents a gigabyte, like who cares? But people forget that, hey, if you're doing hundred, two thousand, 200, 2000 you know, gigabytes, approaching terabytes per day, and all you're doing is aggregating and you're never cleaning up, it starts to add up to real money real fast.
1: All right, let's move on to Oracle. Uh, OCI has a new multi-cloud architect course and certification. Certification is ideal for cloud architects interested in designing and building multi-cloud solutions utilizing Oracle services, which, okay. Oracle contends that multi-cloud is the new normal, especially if you're using Oracle uh, databases and want to save a ton of money on your licensing. And the Oracle Learning Platform is your one-stop shop to get ready for multi-cloud certification tests with video courses, skill checks, exam preps, practice exams, online certification exams, and credentials, and more all available to you. If you want to become an OCI multi-cloud architect, I don't know that'll help your salary, but you could get it and have a pretty
2: badge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know many
3: people that recommend Oracle Cloud, but the ones that do probably have an architecture certification. And have to have the multi-cloud architecture certification to get a job (laughs) afterwards. (laughs) I kind of want to go do this to see what's in it. But at the same point, I feel like I have so many better things to do with my life. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm like, I could do this or I could get my FinOps certification while I'm at the event. I think I might get my (laughs) FinOps certification.
3: It seems like a better use of my time. So quickly looking at the exam guide, there's four main sections: multi-cloud introduction and use cases, core OCI services, so mm-hmm. just OCI, commercial, multi-cloud network connectivity, and Oracle database services for Azure, which is 40% of the exam. Yeah. Wow. There's... Which is
1: just a direct connect between <laughs> Azure and OCI. So you, know, mm-hmm. you definitely need a full yeah. architectural
3: course <laughs> on how to use that. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's forty percent. It's not multi cloud at that point. It's a single other cloud. Yeah,
2: it's less
3: of a certification, more of a commercial for its service. Yeah, which I, oh no. So a certain in point, the, all certifications are but in the multi cloud network connectivity, the 3.2, and there's only the two two subsections is implementation of OCI to Azure interconnect. So really, I feel like this is an OCI to Azure exam. Yes.
1: But mm-hmm. that's multi cloud. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't have that partnership Touché. with Google or with uh, <laughs> Azure, or with, sorry, with uh, Amazon. So,
2: uh,
1: yeah. Uh, good try, Oracle. <laughs> nice try, but I see yep. right through you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to our cloud journey series where we're going to talk about state. Uh, and for all of you who are like state, uh, the only type of state that we care about is stateless. Uh, that is a true statement for most of the people who have been building web applications for the last 10 or 15 years or so, because state isn't web scale. Uh, so as you kind of move into this new world of cloud native, one of the biggest drivers, of course, for stateless architecture is that it provides resiliency from failures, recovery strategies, in the event of a failure, and the option to scale processing capacity up and down to handle variances in your traffic. And in many cases, building stateless is still the right thing to do, but not in all cloud-native architectures. Uh, And so uh, this is where we're going to start here, guys. Uh, You've been all preached to for 15 years to build stateless, and now I'm saying maybe you should build state. What do you guys think?
2: Uh, I mean, I would argue that we've always built state. We've been building towards stateless to understand how to manage our state and not rely and make assumptions about our state. But very little... That I've worked on doesn't have a state somewhere.
1: Yeah, it was, it's sort of funny when I was reading some research before the article, and someone was saying, you know, managing state is much more complicated and and much more you know trouble to deal with, and blah blah blah. I'm like, yeah, but that's what they've been doing forever. Everyone's built yeah. state first.
3: <laughs> there's always state somewhere. So you know, whether it's in your SQL or your caching layer or somewhere, you know, if you're using like session caches or anything like that, there's so still always state. Otherwise, what are you? Doing like cool, here's something that's completely transitive. Like, you always need something somewhere. It's just, you know, it's at, it's really a lot of times like consolidating it to very specific points. Yeah.
1: Well, the thing about state, you know, when you go stateless, because you are managing that state, now you have to deal with where does the remote session state exist? Where does state persistence happen at? And is that in an event or is it in a caching layer, like you mentioned, or, you know, something much more ugly than that? But um, you know the, really the big, the big thing around this uh, you know, particular article and kind of thinking about state and stateless is that really the advantage of eventing. And eventing is being kind of the new, the new driver into how to think about stateful apps. And so if you can build a Kafka queue that all of your things happening in a shopping cart transaction, for example, every state is an event. So I, I add something to my cart, that's an event. I added nothing else. That's a different event. I remove it from my cart. That's a different event. And all of those events can be correlated into a Kafka queue. I can then replay that to any point in time of your transaction. And because I have that little state, I can have lots of, lots of really interesting redundancy use cases. I can use this for SQL server replication versus using native SQL server transactions. Um, I can Once I have that message in a thing, I can have multiple subscribers to it. So every different subscriber can now make an update to it and update state as well. Uh, and so you really are taking state from a very single monolithic use case and you're distributing state into a microservices architecture, but then you need to correlate state across the system. That's where eventing really kind of helps you out. And something like Kafka uh, or other uh, key value storage systems could potentially fix this issue for you.
2: Yeah, I wonder if that's really the challenge with thinking about state in a cloud native world is just, you know, maybe just the, the pure, by the fear name of it, like we're already off to the wrong start, right? Because that's that's sort of what the the arguments turn into, which is well, how would I see a customer's configuration? How would I troubleshoot? Um, you know, do I have to replay the queue for everything? Isn't that gonna affect everyone? You know, that kind of thing. And it's like, well, yeah, all right, you just need to think about this a little differently. You, it's still state. It's just it's distributed now, it's not in one place, you don't have it indexed by a customer ID or or something very specific. It's you have to take a new approach about how you manage these things and how you support applications with a distributed state.
1: Yeah, but that's also, you know, people, again, they're, they're very stuck in an ODBC, OLTP-based workload mm-hmm. where, you know, point-in-time recovery means all point-in-time activities are now rolled back or rolled forward, where in eventing world, because of the way that we do venting and the way you output metadata with the event, you can actually say, well, I only want the events tied to Ryan or to Matt. I don't want the events tied to Justin, so I only want to see his history of his state over a period of time, and I want to roll it back or forward for Matt or for Ryan. I'm not necessarily rolling it back for Justin because Justin finishes transaction or whatever. Um, and so this is, you know, also how things like <laughs> you get chased around the web with emails saying, "Hey, you let something in your cart," uh, occur because they know that you are, you know, they know a uh, customer ID. They know that you added and removed things from your cart and you left something in the cart and you went away from the website and they're like, oh, you left something in your cart. Now I can tell you, hey, you abandoned it. I want to give you 20% off if you come back right now and buy it. That's how all those you know, schemes are basically empowered. But like that model would never have been possible in a prior OLTP version you know, 10 years ago. And so this is, again, thinking differently about your apps as you think about cloud native is that where does eventing make sense and then how do you think about state with that regard to that eventing? And how do I then pull those pieces together?
3: I feel like the big difference between, you know, what the industry is seeing of like, okay, we've gone from you know web servers to containers to, you know, and kept going down to like you know container orchestration management platform, and stuff like that is this is a big, you know, all that's been slowly iterated on at the top level, you know, of like, okay, there's just the web app, you know, and it now we manually install on the server versus now we bake an AMI versus now we Build a container and deploy the container. You know where it's all very incremental steps, and this is really a fundamental change. I feel like of behind the scenes, there was always that SQL or whatever it was that was running everything, where the state was, and this is really a big fundamental change of how the state is stored and how people have to really think about it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think you're right on the track. Um, so you know, one of the the things that I find most annoying about most of these systems in how we talk about session state replication is really, how do you do that? (laughs) And so there's really a couple different ways that you are typically going that. You can use a very simple caching layer like Redis or Memcache. Uh, But then people decided service discovery was going to be a big thing. And we decided that etcd and console and Zookeeper were going to be the future of all things on this. And and the big thing about these three services is that they're all based on consensus protocols. And I have a love-hate uh, relationship with consensus protocols. <laughs> uh, I personally uh, don't really care for some of them. And uh, I know Ryan cares for other ones. And at the end of the day, it's a, it's a fight that is worth having. So Ryan, tell me why I'm wrong about Zookeeper being a terrible, terrible solution with its <laughs> lovely, <laughs> lovely consensus protocol.
2: Well, I, I will say that, um, you know, I don't think that I could, I could defend, you know, like a Zookeeper versus, you know, more modern. Uh, consensus like you know etcd like they're built at different times.
1: I mean etcd controls is, is behind Kubernetes, so I, I feel like I'm already winning because the markets loves Kubernetes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh no no I mean it, it's it's the 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 argument we always have is just you know is is it the tool or is it how the tool's used, right? And so my argument is that if you cram too much into etcd you're gonna have the same problems as you do in Zookeeper. I will say that you know like Zookeeper was built forever ago. And mm-hmm. so like it, you know, while it's really mature and it you know, has a lot of features, it's still kind of old and, you know, there's some clunky bits, uh, especially around like the Java implementation, especially if you don't like writing in Java. But it's, it's one of those things where I think it's really important to to understand that if you're distributing anything and you're cramming so much data into it that it becomes very difficult to reach a consensus about a state, any system is going to have trouble. And so that's where we run into uh, issues. I think that it, when when designing applications, it's much easier to just default to all, right? I'm going to put everything in this distributed state manager, and I'm going to trust it to communicate and correlate all these things. And you can do that with both Zookeeper and NCD. And if you start leaning on that too heavily, when eventually you can't reach quorum, you can't elect a leader, all kinds of badness is going to happen, you know? So like that's, it's more along the lines of like, how do we how do we use state? How do we manage it? And how do we keep it lightweight? And how do we make sure that we're only storing stateful elements that we need yeah. to manage?
1: Well, I think this is, the, you know, the, I agree with you. I think at the end of the day, anytime you're dealing with a uh, distributed <laughs> state management system that has to get to Quorum, uh, you know, you can't overload it. And that's the, probably the biggest mistake people make with using etcd and ZooKeeper is they try to shove everything into it. And, you know, honestly, I see the same problem happen in Kafka, too. Now, of course, Kafka is built on top of, uh, I believe, etcd as well, or maybe it's Zookeeper on Kafka. I don't remember. I think it's Zookeeper. Zookeeper on that one, yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't even keep track of it because it's like we're talking about the inner workings of a lot of products. Like, hey, you know, that's a console over <laughs> there and this is Zookeeper over there in etcd. Yeah. And you only find out when it blows up horrifically. And then you're like, oh, it's Zookeeper. Okay, great. Now I have to go figure yeah. that out.
3: Um, <laughs> and that's how I know that it's built up, That Kafka uses Zookeeper under the hood because it's, ro- it's it blow blown up. Or, yep. 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 Yeah.
1: yep. Um, so one of the one of the key things is with a lot of people do with Kafka is they try to put these huge messages into the event, like they try to put you know ten megabits, twenty megabit event messages, uh, and now they're relying on etcd to base or sorry Zookeeper to basically replicate that across the quorum. That just doesn't work, where you know people who have used Kinesis for a long time, they know that you can't do that. <laughs> you put the object into S3, you put a pointer record to it, and again, that's a different type of cloud-native design thinking pattern. Of Because object storage isn't like spinning disk storage, and it's not sequential, and it's not blocks, it's just I'm making a URL call that all of a sudden everything has much easier. So the event doesn't have to be so heavy um, in the process. And so those are typically where you see successful... Implementations of Zookeeper and, and these different technologies is when they're using it for the right reasons and with the right data constraints. And when they don't do that, that's when all hell breaks loose.
3: I feel like most of these things are more how the tool is leveraged than what the tool is. You can do any of these things. You can do anything with any of these things, but you got to make sure that you're not overloading them, like we've said, or hitting edge cases of what the tool can use and, you know, making sure that you're, you're kind of doing what the tool does well. Like you said, replicating 10, 10 20 megabytes, try to build a quorum, just it's not a good practice. I know I've tried. It's really bad. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it, with any of these things is really just the, making sure that you keep them lightweight, moving quickly through and that way you're not overwhelming anything.
2: Mm-hmm. And you're not serializing your game yes. flows, right? Cause that's, that's the other thing. Like The r- main reason people want to put all that data into a, a Kafka event is so that they can process it, right? And they don't have to go fetch it from somewhere else. And, and that's so that they can do it in line real quick and then return the answer. And that can be disastrous when, when it doesn't work. Um And so the minute you do things in a serial nature that way, you keep them tightly coupled together. W- if one of those processes have a, has an issue, then one of those processes has an issue. And then now everything's out of sync and you end up having to replay. So they, you know, the Kinesis model is, you know, I sort of stumbled upon it, but it's really informed my architecture by, by having those limitations, um, creating those, um, those patterns where I don't expect to, to sort of leverage the same thing. I, I, I orchestrate a lot more. I, gu- I guarantee my results, you know, I, I validate my schemas and I, all of all of these checks and balances that I have as part of the logic. So I don't make too many assumptions that this will all just fall along the happy path and work as expected. And, you know, I think that that's coming up, you know, starting with zookeeper, you think, you know, I took a very similar sort of path with managing that state. And, um, you know, I was like, I'm going to be very careful with what's in there. Like I don't, you know, it was a lot of, I didn't, you know, these are brand new technologies to me and I didn't trust it. Um, was a lot of it, but it was, you know, it was like, this is cool. And I don't, I definitely don't want to maintain, you know, coming back from failure of my application. So let's, let's pick and choose the right elements to store that I can have everything rehydrate as needed from there. It's just pattern, good patterns that to make your app design, you know, much more resilient and, you know, and easy. Although it feels more complex when you're writing it down on boxes, drawing (laughs) diagrams.
1: It, it's funny because uh, most of my hatred of Zookeeper actually comes out of the fact that Elasticsearch uses it pretty heavily <laughs> for its uh, its quorum. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I've been burned by all three yeah. of them at one point or another in my career: yeah. Zookeeper, Etcd, yeah. and console. Just the Zookeeper wounds have been the deepest, <laughs> and I think again, it's it just Zookeeper invites its nature and the way it's designed, because you can just shove JSON objects into it like crazy. Um, it gets abused a lot more often, where etcd is typically more key value store. Again, you could shove a JSON object into that too, but because it's more designed as a key value store, um, you kind of avoid some of that pain. And then console is another you know, really true key value store type solution versus Zookeeper, which
2: is JSON.
1: <laughs> JSON all the way down.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is true. It's 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 funny to think of it that way because it is you know the more sort of he, like if I think about those three in order, right, console, Etcd, and Zookeeper, like they go from, you know, what, I forget which direction I did now, but one is, you know, the key valueness of them, the simplicity of like thing equals thing. Um, and it correlates to the amount of pain and suffering I've, I've had in my career, right? So <laughs> like I've had the least with console because <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, thing equals thing. I got this, you know? Yeah, We can all agree that thing equals thing. That's all we got to do, you know, and it it doesn't break in a spectacular way where you're trying to recover terribleness. Yeah.
3: I think the only one I've been burned by actually is Etcd. I've I've had to help a customer through a a big console outage back in the day. So I have a little bit of like, you know, looking at it, but very closely being like, okay, be nice. Don't break mm -hmm. on me, you know, after a few scar tissues. Around
1: that one. Uh, I mean, I've seen some pretty horrendous etcd disasters, but typically driven by bad Kubernetes practices and bad Kubernetes providers and, and things that you're putting in there that didn't didn't understand etcd. That's typically the most common scenario I've seen with etcd with uh, uh, Kubernetes in particular. Um, and then, you know, in the case of console because it really came from that service discovery and very key value pair oriented site you don't have a lot of people building really complicated things on it plus it's it's not open source like ZooKeeper so and ncdr so you know you're not going to see apache adopt console <laughs> which is a you know potentially a paid enterprise offering and so i think that's also part of the reason why we don't see console as much pain because it's not trying to be used by a thousand multi, you know open source projects with you know varying degrees of success I mean, plus, I, like, I do like the surf uh, gossip protocol just a little bit better than I like Raft. Uh, but I mean, all gossip protocols have their own own disaster stories that we could get into as well.
2: That's true, too.
1: All right. Well, that's yeah. uh, that's a lot about state. <laughs> well, if you have questions about state or any of our cloud-native journey series, you can always ping us at pod at thecloudpod.net uh, or you can ping us on our Slack team as usual. And that is it for another fantastic week here in the cloud. Thank you, Matt and Ryan. Sorry we couldn't get Jonathan here today. He had some car troubles and was not able to make it. But hopefully we'll all be back in the show next week and we can cover the latest in cloud news once again.
2: Indeed. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions.